0: Welcome to another episode of Words Nerds, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Tonight, I'm super excited to welcome a return guest, Chris Hammer. He is a leading Australian crime fiction novelist, author of the internationally best-selling series, including Scrublands, Silver and Trust. Now, Chris has started a new series beginning with Treasure and Dirt, followed by The Tilt, which we're going to be talking about today. Scrublands was an instant bestseller upon publication in 2018. Seems so long ago now, Chris topping the australian fiction charts shortlisted for major writing awards and was named the sunday times crime novel of the year 2019 and won the uk crime writers association john crazy new blood dagger award so impressive chris and you've come back with a brand new book the tilt welcome
1: back danny so nice to be back with you
0: it is. It's always lovely to talk to you, not only about your books, but I really want to talk about the evolution of you as a crime writer. I mean, Scrublands was amazing, but then, you know, you just keep on writing these books. I know it doesn't feel like it for you, Chris, but I feel like every time I turn around, you've got this amazing giant book on the shelf ready for me to read again. So <laughs> does it feel like that for you?
1: Well, it does. <laughs> it's it, it suddenly, it, like 2018 is only four years ago, right? But yeah. this is my fifth book. Amazing. So, you know, I had a 2018, 2019, 2020, 21, 2022.
0: That's pretty amazing.
1: Uh, yeah. And if, and if any of the writers out there are wondering how you can possibly do that, um, I, I do it full time. I don't, I'm one of those really fortunate people who don't have to have a proper job <laughs> second thing i don't have young kids so many writers do and not only do they take up time but my god can they take up energy uh my kids are growing up now um and the third thing uh i'm really addicted to it i just love <laughs> doing it so if i don't do a bit every day it doesn't feel right and if you do a bit every day you know, over the course of the year, you end up with a book.
0: Mm, I love that. Well, I have two strikes against those things, Chris. It's probably why i never get much done. So I've got the little kids and I've got the, the other job. So uh, that's, that's my excuse. <laughs>
1: also, also, I'm not foolish enough to take on a, take on a podcast. Oh, that too. Yeah,
0: that, that little thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, that little thing.
0: <laughs> well, let's start by giving me an elevator pitch to what The Tilt is about.
1: Okay, the tilt. This isn't so easy because there's actually two elevator pictures.
0: Oh, I like this.
1: And that's because the book has three different timelines in it. So I'll just start with a contemporary timeline. The book is set in the Barmamillewa Forest. It's a real place, the world's largest river red gum forest, uh, down on the Murray River on the border between Victoria and New South Wales. The prologue, this isn't a spoiler um, because it's the first few pages. We're in the forest, it's winter, and it's midnight. And there are two people in the forest. Um, They don't know that each other is there. Mm. They're unnamed. One is a woman intent on blowing up a regulator. This is a small dam that sits between the Murray River and the creeks that lead into the forest. It's there to prevent water flowing up into the forest. Uh, and not far away, unbeknownst to her, is an is a young man, also unnamed, he's running for his life. He's being hunted by men with guns. Uh, we don't know why, and we don't know who he is. So that's the prologue. The story proper, or at least the contemporary story proper, starts with... Uh, Nell Buchanan and Ivan Lukic, Detective Constable Nell Buchanan and Detective Sergeant Ivan Lukic. These are the main characters we met in Treasure and Dirt. And so they're back with us and they've been sent down to the forest because a body has been discovered. The woman in the prologue has successfully blown up this regulator. Three months later, a work crew is repairing the, this small dam and they find a body. And so Nell and Ivan are sent down there. Nell is really kind of reluctant to be there. She doesn't want to be there for two reasons. One is purely practical. She's just been elevated to being a full-time homicide detective, and she reckons this is a dud case because it's clear the body has been there for many decades. So she reckons there's mm. no chance of, of really finding a killer. It's going to be end up in a cold case file. But her other reason is far more personal. She grew up in that area. Her parents still live there. She has a very strained relationship, particularly with her mother, so she doesn't want to be there. Um, Ivan leaves her there because he also thinks the case is going nowhere, Um, and she's just tidying up the paperwork when things start to escalate. More bodies are found. She's threatened with violence, and uh, most worrying of all for her is as more bodies appear she begins to suspect that members of her own family are implicated in these murders and off we go
0: (laughs) talk about a hit in the face i tell you what that prologue it does hit you in the face and it makes you absolutely want to know what's going to happen in this forest now tell me how much do you labour over a prologue? Is it something that you think of first and it sets the story up or is it something you really have to wrangle and work hard because it's important, the prologue, right? That's the thing that's going to get people to keep reading your book.
1: Yeah, it can be very important in commercial fiction, I think, mm-hmm. to, to have that grab and in crime fiction. So true story, that, that my first book, Scrublands, that you were kind enough to, to refer to earlier, it has this incredibly dramatic prologue. Um, I'm sure it's not a spoiler, but it, it starts with a priest outside a church in a small country yeah. town. Everything's fine. He's happy. He seems quite jovial. He goes into the church to prepare for the service, to don his vestments, comes out a few minutes later. He's got a high-powered rifle. He shoots five of his congregation dead uh, before he himself is killed. Uh And then the story proper arrives with the journalist Martin, uh, starts with the journalist Martin Mm. Scarson arriving in the town a year later to write a story about how the town is coping a year on from these terrible events. So as you read that, you think it's a really uh, dramatic way to start the book. Mm. It's very gripping and works very well. But seriously, I didn't get to write that prologue until probably draft seven or eight. Wow. I started the story because I tell you, with Scrublands, I was really learning on the job. Mm -hmm. Um, It took years and I threw out hundreds of thousands of words just to try and get it right. And I I was starting the book with Martin arriving in this town in the middle of the day, a 40-degree day with no one on the streets in this deserted town. So atmospheric, yes. Pacey, no. And so I was trying to artificially you know, ginger up Mm -hmm. him being in an empty town and it wasn't working. And it's so obvious that I I knew what the crime was. I knew that the priest had shot the five people. It just hadn't occurred to me Mm -hmm. to show it. You know, it's that old thing, show, don't tell. And I've had it so, you know, Martin gets told or there's some sort of clumsy exposition about what the crime was. And then it just occurred to me one day it was like, literally like a penny dropping. Oh, you need the prologue like that. So in my um, subsequent books, uh, the next book Silver doesn't have a prologue because the beginning is fairly dramatic anyway. There is a there is a body if you like in the in the first chapter. Um, now with this one, the tilt. I just described those two people in the forest. Well, I started with the prologue, but it was only with the woman in the forest, the one intent on blowing up the regulator. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was only, it was into the editing stage, actually, of the book. And um, the editor suggested something i forget it was what she what she suggested because i ignored it I, thought, <laughs> I love that i, I thought <laughs> i know what i'll do is i'll i'll put this second story in there too uh which, which made perfect sense it's not kind of some artificial construction or fabrication it makes perfect sense so it, that's a very very long-winded answer to your question Oh, i
0: love this i love talking about the craft so to just yeah, carry, but- carry on
1: but so yes, I was intending to have a prologue. I had the woman blowing up the regulator. I didn't have that second I had the that other storyline, but not inserted right up front like that. Mm-hmm. And it and it works well to have those two kind of hooks because you're in a confined space. It's clear that they're quite close to each other because they can hear you know, the woman can hear gunshots mm-hmm. and the and a And the guy can hear an explosion. But for the reader, the question is is immediately there. Are these two events connected in some ways? Mm. And if so, how? And who the hell are these two people?
0: Mm. And that was what, you know, stuck with me. When you talked about the Scrublands one, I just started to remember exactly how I pictured that and where I was reading it because that was a very powerful prologue that stays with you. And I think it's the prologue is not only that atmospheric and the action, but it really is the unexpected because you expect someone, you know, maybe to be lost in a forest. You don't expect two people to be in a forest and having their own, you know, things going on. And then, you know, in Scrublands, that was totally unexpected either. So do you feel like those kind of really intense prologues come from the unexpectedness?
1: Well, partly. it's um, It's It also... You can also you have this very dramatic thing happening, but you can have some other smaller elements that are like little clues, but they they're not immediately obvious. So in the other book of mine that has a very dramatic prologue as Treasure and Dirt, um, and it's set in an opal mining town, a kind of a, a heavily fictionalized version of Lightning Ridge, if you like a wilder, woolier version of Lightning Ridge. And we're with a team of ratters. Now, ratters are opal thieves. They're the lowest of the low. And what they do is they go down their mates' mines in the dead of night and steal their opals. You know, these are small towns, everybody know or settlements, everyone knows each other. And these uh, these ratters get wind that someone's on a good streak of opals. So they go down and steal the the opals. So the book starts with these ratters down a mine, but instead of finding opals, they find a miner, and he's dead. He's been murdered, but he's also been crucified. So that's that's very dramatic, right? But the reason I I ended up there wasn't just oh let's think of something dramatic, because it then becomes evident pretty early on in the investigation that the time, there's been in a, quite a few hours between the time the guy died and the time he was crucified. So again, that's putting in the mind of the reader, mm, are there two perpetrators here? Mm-hmm. Are two separate crimes occurred here? If so, are they connected? And how did one know of the other? That sort of thing. So it's, it's dramatic, but it's also, also you know, posing questions to the reader.
0: Mm. Now you mentioned before that Scrublands took you years, being your first book, and then after that you've you know had five books in four years, or a book a year, basically. So what, what's changed in the process?
1: Um, well, I, you know I explain how I'm able to do it because I've, I've got the time to do it and the inclination. But I also think I'm getting better at some of the aspects of writing. So i am probably pick up earlier when something's going wrong. So with Scrublands, I'd write these chapters and these scenes and and they'd be really good scenes and they'd be polished and all the rest. And then in the end, I'd realise that they weren't working Mm. for the book. So it's that classic kill your darling sort of situation. Now I think I'm more... uh, I'm quicker to th- throw stuff away, Okay. which means I'm not putting as much work into it. I'm not
0: mm, that's good advice, rewriting
1: actually. it, rewriting it six yeah. times to and make it finally polished, and then throwing it away.
0: Because do you find that you know that it's wrong, but you, you've in the past you've kept wrangling it and kept wrangling it, but you've always had a gut feeling that it, it wasn't working.
1: Yeah, I'm, I reckon I have probably got better antenna of yeah, okay. what's not working. The other thing there's a so you often talk about, I guess, in crime fiction of the importance of plot and of setting and of character. But there's one element that is very important in, in probably any kind of genre book and to an extent in literary as well, and that's pacing. Mm-hmm. How, how much time you spend in any particular scene, what you include, what you leave out, how do you drive the story forward? So you can often get a say a crime fiction book, and it does have the dramatic opening, and you want to know what happens. And maybe it, maybe it's got a really satisfying ending. Maybe it doesn't. But often one of the problems is the story's drag in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so some of the big international authors, you, you know, the sort of action thriller writers, it's they're not really my cup of tea, but. It, I admire the craft skill there, so the the characters might be a bit two dimensional, um, and the plot might be a bit derivative. And you can make all these criticisms, you know, the writing's wooden, whatever. But it's often the pacing that's amazingly fast, page turning. You you you're just about to go. I've had enough, and oh, not oh, better (laughs) read another chapter, you know, that sort of thing. So, I think I'm probably a little bit more. Attuned to that, more intuitively attuned to that sort of pacing issues.
0: Mm, I find that very interesting about pacing, and I like how you said it's how long you spend in a scene and what you include and what you don't. I think that's the best explanation of pacing I've ever heard, actually.
1: Oh, okay, okay, good. good.
0: <laughs> this is uh, the craft. This has turned into the craft of crime writing, just somehow. Um, we will we will go back to your book, *The Tilt*. But this is so interesting. is so interesting. Do you get to talk about craft much usually usually when i start talking about that with my family they you know throw a potato at me or something
1: no i don't because often you know i've just been on a really extensive, extensive book tour but most of the audience are going to be readers and mm-hmm. i found um the readers are often interested in in some of the craft aspects yeah. you'll always get a few aspiring writers in the audience uh, but you can't really deep dive
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, especially because, you know, most people, they just see the beautiful book and the beautiful cover on the shelf and they read it in, you know, days or hours maybe if it's a real page turner. But there's a lot that happens between the idea of a book and, you know, finally getting it on the shelf. So there's a lot that's not seen, I think.
1: That's true. And I think writing um, involves a whole skill set and some writers you know, are stronger in one area than they are in another. You know, you get someone who's great at plotting but not so good at character or, you know, I've heard people say they have real difficulty writing dialogue. Mm-hmm. I, I quite like writing dialogue. It often takes me off into weird and wonderful and <laughs> in interesting places. I do think um, I, I tend to, you know, there's a saying, you know, write with your heart and edit with your brain mm. and i think i am i am like that when i'm writing i'm I, i'm a pantser which means you know i write by the of my pants i have the seed of ideas and then i as i'm writing they take me off into different directions and that's that's when it's good to have those antennae to say ah uh-uh, this isn't working back <laughs> up back up pal go back and, and have a better idea um but then to have the ability later to, to put on that editing type brain hat and go, what's wrong with this? What's right? How, or how could this be better? Um, so I think there's, there's a bunch of skills involved with writing and some of them you get better at.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean the book's going to be better than the one before it, because so much depends on just the power of the story. You know, you could, you, could, you could deploy all the writing, writerly skills you've got but if the story's no good, you know, mm. you, you know, it's a matter of, you know, it's like polishing a turd, I guess.
0: <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Very well put. Now, you're talking about writing and editing in two different sort of brain spaces, I guess, you know, writing mm. with the heart and soul and then editing with the brain. I think it was Ernest Hemingway who said, write, drunk, edit, sober.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Same yep, sort of okay. thing. Yep. Not, that
0: I'm not advocating you get drunk, maybe just one drink or two. We drink yep. responsibly, of course, Chris. Um, but it's course, it's sort of the same thing. So I'm wondering, when you're writing, do you just write and you don't worry about editing at all? You just write with that heart and soul and then later on you'll go back and you'll think, okay, now I'm doing an edit? Like how do you work this out or do the two meld together?
1: That I'm trying to be more like that. So I know some writers have a very um, well-defined process for writing, but I've found that mine keeps evolving. So I'm trying to be a little bit more intuitive in the writing and not not bouncing straight into that sort of editing mode. Yep. But I do. So when I'm writing, I'm trying to be like that, but then I can only do it for three or four or five you know, maximum five hours a day. That's mm-hmm. the actual writing. And then I'll go off, I'll do some exercise, or I'll be driving or doing the housework, the shopping, whatever. As the year goes on, I'm thinking more and more about the book and it's sort of, you know, possessing me. So every day I'm going to be thinking, oh, does that make sense? What about that? Or, oh, hang on, that's a better idea. Why don't I do that instead? So it's the processes are sort of happening in a complimentary way yeah mm. it's well, not like i write the whole book in, in this kind of great jack Kerouac <laughs> stream of consciousness sort of you know download and then go back and go oh god what's this i've written no.
0: <laughs> i wonder if you even went back when i read on the road one of my favorite novels by the way but it's um yeah. definitely that stream of consciousness stuff i don't know if that would float these days what do you reckon
1: oh yeah The trouble with doing that is if it works once, the chances of it working again are pretty slim, I think.
0: (laughs) I agree. And it's funny because I really enjoyed that book and then I couldn't figure out what I enjoyed about it, though. Like, I put it down. I thought, I really enjoyed that. But why? Nothing actually happened. (laughs)
1: Well, it's a complete classic. It <laughs> since captures the mood.
0: Yeah, I think it's a vibe. The mood of
1: restless youth so well. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think
0: that's what it is. I just could never put my finger on what I enjoyed about it. I was like, oh, well, I just enjoyed it. But, yeah, the restless youth, that could very well be it. Yeah. I love that.
1: Oh, and the charisma of the what's his name jack cassidy
0: yeah yeah absolutely i might read it again i might go back i love oh i'm a bit scared of doing that though i don't know about you but if i really have loved a book you know 10 20 years ago i'm scared to go back to it because i think i might not love it anymore and i like to just love these books do you reread books
1: uh yeah i don't get much chance to but i know exactly where you're coming from particularly those books that meant a lot yes in your late teen years or early 20s you wonder, are they going to work as well? So I know, like, a lot of people now, there's a lot of criticism of, say, uh, Catcher in the Rye, that mm-hmm. it's just this white, privileged, private school dude, you know, <laughs> self-obsessing. And, it's, you know, and I'm going, oh, I'm not sure that's the book I read. But.
0: Exactly right. <laughs> Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I should just leave them alone, but it's a curiosity, mm-hmm. so I'm very scared to get back to a book that I treasured so much. Yeah. So, I want to know. You said your process has changed a little bit. Always been a pantser, have you, or has your process changed with each book?
1: It, look, it evolves, but I'm, t- yeah. Look, any end of the, any end of the day, I'm a pantser because even if I try and plot and I think I've got a good plot, as soon as I start writing. <laughs> My You're ideas, off. the ideas <laughs> change. Yeah, you, know, you get a yeah. better idea. Why wouldn't you go with it? Yeah, yeah. So, I'm probably process changing. Um, the the way I'm approaching structure has probably changed a lot. It, well, it's just evolved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this book, The Tilt, is a lot more complex as structure than, say, Scrublands. Scrublands had a complicated plot there's three or four or five different plot lines going on and they all finally resolve and this is one of the reasons why a small town like a country town is a good setting for a book like that because everybody knows everybody else and knows their business so if these if plot lines start crossing over and with people in common it makes sense in a small country town where it yeah. would just seem like an outlandish coincidence if it was in set the city.
0: in Melbourne. Yeah.
1: So my books have always had that kind of complex plot, like more than one crime, more than one perpetrator, that sort of thing. And that was actually a deliberate decision when I was writing Scrublands, mainly because I couldn't work out how you could get, get the reveal of the who done it. So yeah. right? So it's often where a crime book falls over. There's a mystery, the who done it mystery, and if the reader guesses halfway through the book who the murderer was, the rest of the book's an anticlimax. And the opposite of that is when the the reader has no chance of guessing who the killer is mm. because they don't have enough information, and then ten pages before the end of the book,
0: surprise!
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the author dump, you know downloads all this new information and new characters and that and. So the reader feels cheated. So I made this deliberate decision. Oh, well, I'm not sure if I can do the big reveal and get it right. Um, I'll have several crimes and several mm. perpetrators and they'll all be interwoven. And that way if someone guesses one of the plot lines, they won't guess all of them.
0: Interesting. Uh,
1: and as I'm a pants, I thought that would work too because if because I didn't know who the perpetrators yeah. were in half the storylines right and if i didn't know how could the reader guess that that was a theory anyway so again that's a very long-winded way into this answer but for all the complexities of the plot in scrublands the structure itself is really simple you get the dramatic prologue the pre-shoots the parishioners the story proper begins with martin Scarsden, the journalist he arrives in this small town everything's told from his perspective it's in straight chronological order starts at the beginning he investigates he finds out more and more stuff and by the end everything resolved so structurally it's really simple this put the tilt is quite different so in Scrublands there's one point of view It's Martin. It's not told first person, it's close third person, but you can read what Martin is thinking, what he's feeling, and you have his impressions of what other people are thinking and feeling. In this book, you've got three point-of-view characters and they're in three timelines. There's a young boy called Jimmy. He's actually recounting the story as an old man now, but he's recounting when he was an 11-year-old boy during the Second World War. And it's during, during a terrible drought, which is historically accurate, and he's tasked with taking the family cattle off the farm and into the forest where there's uh, feed and water in a way there's not at the farm. So, and he's he's recalling that. Then you've got a teenage girl, a fifteen-year-old girl called Tessa, and her story set in the nineteen seventies. And then you've got the contemporary story, which I, I mentioned before, which is Nell Buchanan arriving in the, in the forest to investigate the discovery of a body. So these three stories start out as being completely separate. Mm-hmm. And then as, it's, as the book goes along, it's almost their fates collide, these three characters. And the reader reading one storyline is informed about what's happening in another storyline. Now that's it's difficult to write. It's almost I, I, three
0: books, Chris, in one. Yeah,
1: and it's and it's not you know it's not like first third of the book is the World War Two story, mm. second third, yeah, yeah, a all story. Yeah, so they're all kind of interwoven. And look, I wrote, I reckon about twelve drafts before I got, got it as good as I could wow. possibly it before okay. I gave it to the publishers, um, and then the editor came back. And she just mentioned one thing which just made me rewrite Nell's story almost completely.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Because um, it was a pacing issue that that she was just, the line the editor put in, oh, she, this chapter, she's spinning her wheels a bit. Uh, and it was true because it, it was kind of like I needed the other storylines to develop more mm, so they'd interesting. be in sync. Mm. So it's quite a, I <laughs> don't, look, for any aspiring writers, I do not recommend this. Um, it, it, I, I think I well got away with it. I, I, hopefully, a bit more than getting away with it. I think by the end, the book's works very well, and I'm very proud of it. I don't, but I don't think I would have had the skills to do that sort of structure when I was writing Scrublands. I was I was flat out trying to get that completely straight. Chronological start at the beginning, end at the end type mm-hmm, story. Mm-hmm. That was, that took me years to get right for Scrumlands. This one, so structurally, this one is more ambitious. But as I say, having a more ambitious structure doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a better book. In fact, I'd suspect in most cases it'd be the opposite. You know, often the best stories are the simplest stories.
0: Mm, interesting i love this chat so much now i want to ask you i spoke to jack heath and he's written oh maybe he's up to 50 books 30 books a lot of books and I'm he says it. that 75 percent of the way into every single book he writes no matter how many he's written he has this incredible self-doubt and he thinks oh my god i can never write a book again i've lost all my talent all the others were flukes is there a point in your writing where you think oh wow this is this is hard this is my sticking point this is my challenge or after 5 books do you back yourself the whole I'm way i'm more
1: inclined to back myself now to be fair um, one, of the, one of the one of the obstacles i think that writers need to overcome is is that idea of self doubt and mm-hmm. that you know i can't do it and all the rest of that and the way I think around that is just concentrating on the book. The problem isn't you. The problem is the book, the manuscript. That's what needs to be. Pe- people don't care about you. They don't care about the author. They just care about whether the book they're reading is okay. That's true. So so with a crime book, and you know, as I said, because I'm a pantser and because the plots are complex, I'm forever running into dead ends and things that aren't working or oh, hang on, I've got these two people are in, or well, this person's in two places at once, or how can they, you know, all that sort of, just the, the logistics of the plot. And it, and it, with Scrublands, it was very much, oh, God, I can't do this, how? you know, and I put it away for a while and, you know, I had the kids were at home and, you know, I had my full-time job. um, And so there was a lot of self-doubt. Now I, now I tend to think, look, yeah, I can't see my way out of this, but the problem isn't me. The problem is the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And in the, at the end of the day, that's all that matters is the book. It's not what people think of you or any of that. It's just whether the book's any good. So I probably have more confidence now that I can write myself out of that sort of problem. Um, but look, so... Well, having said that, though, self-doubt is part of the process, I think. If, mm. you, if you just think everything you write is brilliant, you know, we know where that's going to end, <laughs> right? I, I think the right, that's trouble. right. But
0: I think even in life, I think the right dose of self-doubt keeps you honest and it keeps you improving your work. The wrong dose paralyzes you and then not having any makes you a complete
1: yeah. idiot. If, if you're feeling overly confident, just go on Goodreads and read all the one-star <laughs> reviews, and that will bring you down to earth.
0: I love that. I was actually speaking to Adrian Beck the other day, a children's author, and I said, "You know what? As a writer, you can actually never have a big ego, can you? Because one minute people love your book, and the next minute people hate it. You like, you can never actually get a big head being a writer. It's impossible."
1: No, and look But once again, it's you realize. Yeah, I thought when I wrote Scrubland, and I'd written a couple of non-fiction books before then, yeah. which were—I don't think I could have written Scrublands if I hadn't written them. So that was like a stepping stone mm-hmm. for me from journalism into fiction. Um, I was under the impression that when you wrote a book, it was then it was printed, it was set in stone, and everyone read the same book <laughs> and it's only when you go out you you realize uh uh-uh, nah a book's an inanimate object i mean if you can't read or you can't read english it's just squiggly lines on a page and it only comes to life in the mind of the reader mm. and the point is that all readers are different yeah so you will it doesn't matter how good Or how bad for that matter your book is, you'll always get outliers. You'll get people who think it's the best book they've ever read, and you'll get people who think it's the worst book they've ever read. Mm. And that's kind of it's it's almost a given. And then you get all the people in between, and you know, hopefully there's more up towards the end of really (laughs) liking it. And you know, it's almost like a a, like a bell curve, I guess, like a statistical thing. One of the things I've noticed with my books, you know, five books in, there's no, and I get, you know, if I'm out doing events, then obviously most of the people coming to to see are people who've read the books and like them. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a really biased sample in a kind of in a good way. <laughs> people don't like the books; they're not they're staying the home. The book. <laughs> but there's no standout favorite and what people think is my best book. Mm-hmm. So probably Scrublands and this one, The Tilt, might have their nose in front, but you will still get people who like, for them, Silver is the best book, or Trust, or Treasure and Dirt. You get very different takes on characters. You mm-hmm. get women who absolutely love Mandalay Blonde, who's, the, who's Martin Scarsland's partner in the first three books, and you'll get women who hate her. I'm not sure why. So you get this, the response to your books is really out of your control. Mm. So your job is really just to make it the best book you possibly can as a writer. Guided by your own sensibilities, mm. and that's pretty much all you can do. And then you've got to kiss it and let it go let out it go in into the, the world. world.
0: And that's yeah. what is both terrifying and really exciting about any form of art: is that once you do put it out into the world, it's no longer all yours. It doesn't just belong to you; it belongs to everybody who's experienced it.
1: Yeah, that, and that's the you know look when the magic, magic, isn't it? The magic of a book is is exactly that: it it comes alive in the mind of the reader and i think with me as a reader i really like an immersive read Mm. where you just enter another almost another reality and that i agree which is an obvious if you're reading like a fantasy book but it's the same with a crime book a contemporary literary book well if you enter this other world and it captures you and i think that explains why books have been so resilient yeah, amongst I all these yep. digital age with yep. everything from netflix to computer games to whatever yep. Yep. that I mean, books will stand the
0: test of our, because we're yeah. storytellers you know, even before books were printed human beings were storytellers and it's funny i've always wanted my kids to be readers you know i thought oh my goodness what if my kids aren't readers and they are but my son i think it was the first time he was reading the hunger games for the first time and he was in the car and he stopped and he closed the book and he said Mum. I'm crying. I've never cried over a book. And I was kind of really happy cuz I thought oh, that's what's meant to happen. You know, books are meant to move you so much and you're meant to be completely immersed in these worlds that they do make you feel these things and you'll never forget the books you cried over. Will you? You never forget them.
1: So here's a question you should ask authors. Do you ever cry when you're writing?
0: <laughs> the answer to that is a yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, because I asked it a few times at events and some authors get it straight away and go, oh, yeah, how did you know? You know, you've got this this character you're really attached to, you're writing mm. a scene and, you know, they're affected badly or they're affected in like a really happy sort of Yeah,
0: life. yeah, yeah.
1: And, yeah, or oh, you'll be laughing along. You know, I with, love that. With that's, a bit of witty dialogue. That's going to be and one it, of
0: my new questions, Chris. Yes.
1: And then other authors just look at you as if, is this bloke mad?
0: <laughs> Are you for real?
1: Yeah, it is
0: going to be a new question I ask people from now on. Instead yeah. of you know, as well as my why do you write, which is coming up for you again. I know you've answered it before, but I oh. think it's an evolving question. So, leading great segue. So, I've asked you why do you write before. I do feel like it evolves over time. Yeah. So, why do you keep writing, Chris?
1: I think now I can't imagine not writing. I think it's just become part of who I am. Mm. I was very reluctant for quite a while to to say I'm a writer. When I wrote my two nonfiction books, I thought, oh, I can't call myself a writer because (laughs) I don't earn I don't earn my living out of yeah you know, I've written books. It doesn't make me a writer. Then before Scrublands came out, there was about a year. So I had a, a really good book deal. The book was coming out and I was writing the next one. So you know, but i still felt i couldn't call myself a writer now though it's it's it really is part of me and it's i mean hopefully not um too much because i hate the idea that your identity as a person gets tied up too much in One what
0: thing, you actually yeah. do
1: um but then again i don't think of writing as just a profession or a job i think it's mm. it's more it's that expression yeah um so I think I write now because it's too difficult to imagine not writing.
0: Mm, I love that answer, and I think anyone who who is a writer should have that answer. You know, you you need to be compelled to do it because it's not always easy. It's hard work. It's a grind. It takes up a lot of your. You know, you weren't just talking about the time writing. You were you're talking about you know the time that it lives in your head. You know, always thinking, always unraveling, always undoing. So it's something that you constantly live with in some ways.
1: I think thinking. a lot of people who who are real writers just they love doing it so much or are compelled to do it however you want to express it and it explains why so many of the really successful authors in the world you know weren't overnight sensations Mm. if you Mm. go back you find out well they had one or two or three books in the bottom drawer then they started getting published working full-time other jobs and it was their third or fourth or fifth book or something that propelled them yeah. in- into, you know, into self-sufficiency as writers. And the reason they've stuck with it is because they like doing it, which is, I mean, it, that's what happened to me in a way in that I'd written the two nonfiction books that were well-received. I knew I could, I could write a book, a, a decent book. But I just thought, well, I'm never going to make any money out of it, but I like doing it. So I started writing the book that became Scrublands more as a kind of a, like a hobby or a retirement project or something like that. And I think if you're an aspiring writer, the idea that you're going to write this great book first up, you know, win all these prizes, but be acclaimed. Well, Maybe that will happen. I hope it does. But what do you do next? What you do next, of course, if you're a writer, is you write more books. Mm. And some will be better than others, and some, you know, some will fall flat on their face. Some you might even have to abandon. Um, but it's a, I think it's a lifetime pursuit.
0: Mm, really do. I love all of that, and our chat has been one of the most enjoyable chats I've had in a long time. I love talking about the craft, so I hope we talked about the tilt enough. It was a great book; I enjoyed it. I read it during the hurricane I was in in Orlando, so added that bit of extra extra wow. to it. Yeah, I was sort of bunker down in a hotel room for two days, and I thought, why not just continue freaking myself out by writing the reading the tilt? I mean, why not?
1: It's mild compared to a.
0: <laughs> You're not going to read Jane Austen in a hurricane. You may as well go full tilt,
1: right? <laughs> Yeah.
0: So, okay. <laughs> so thank you for that I appreciate that but no this chat has been amazing I think for, for readers and writers and aspiring writers alike so thank you so much for going on that you know tangent with me that 45 minute tangent I thoroughly enjoyed it thank you so much
1: anytime Dan Now, see now I'm going to have to write another book so I can come back well, again
0: you'd better because we got more craft stuff to talk about I want to see what you've learnt now in book six
1: yeah me too
0: <laughs> we'll take two hours to chat about it <laughs> maybe okay. over a schnitzel at the pub maybe
1: Oh, that sounds good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Chris.